Good morning, everyone. This morning I'm going to be reading from Isaiah 24 concerning the Lord's devastation of the earth. See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priest as for people, for master as for servant, for mistress as for maid, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers, the world languishes and withers. The exalted of the earth languish. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, earth inhabitants are burned up and very few are left. The new wine dries up and the vine withers. All the merrymakers groan. The gaiety of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the revellers has stopped. The joyful harp is silent. No longer do they drink wine with a song. The beer is bitter to its drinkers. The ruined city lies desolate. The entrance to every house is barred. In the streets they cry out for wine. All joy turns to gloom. All gaiety is banished from the earth. The city is left in ruins. Its gate is battered to pieces. So will it be on the earth and among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, or as when gleanings are left after the grape harvest. They raise their voices, they shout for joy. From the west they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the islands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear singing, Glory to the righteous one. But I said, I waste away, I waste away. Woe to me. The treacherous betray, with treachery the treacherous betray. Terror and pit and snare await you, O people of the earth. Whoever flees at the sound of terror will fall into a pit. Whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. The floodgates of the heavens are opened. The foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken up. The earth is split asunder. The earth is thoroughly shaken. The earth reels like a drunkard. It sways like a hut in the wind. So heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls, never to rise again. In that day, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They will be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison and be punished after many days. 
The moon will be abashed, the sun ashamed. For the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders gloriously. Thank you, Michelle. Welcome uh, again. It, let me introduce myself. If I'm uh, Tim, if, uh, if you're new or visiting, it's great to have you along. Actually, sorry, Youth Church, that's your signal too. You get to head out. Um, just a casual sort of 14, 15 chapters of Isaiah today. Nothing too dramatic. You know, don't get worked up about it. Um, what do you do when you come to such a significant chunk of a, such a significant book? Well, the first thing we ought to do is pray. Hey? Let's, would you join with me? Let's pray and ask God to help us as we do this. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do, we do ask, as we ask every week, that you would help us today. Help us to understand your word. Help us to understand it that we might know you better and love you more and serve you more wholeheartedly with our whole lives. We pray it for Jesus' sake, in his name. Amen. Uh, welcome again, as I said. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are joining us today for the first time, then let me give you a little bit of a background. We're in the fifth installment of our preaching series on the book of Isaiah, which we've been sort of kind of, uh, you know, likening to the climb up Mount Everest. Because if you were to picture the Old Testament as a, as a mountain range, I want to suggest that Isaiah would be the Everest. It's sort of like the, the pinnacle of the, of the whole book. It's where the, the, uh, the best Old Testament, if you like, exposition of the gospel, it's all there. And so we've been trekking alongside the nation of Judah with the prophet Isaiah as our kind of our Sherpa and our guide. And we're trying to understand how Isaiah's message was heard and understood in its original historical political context. That is how... How was this understood by the kingdom of Judah and the people in the 8th century BC? But not just that. In fact, more than that, we've also been seeking to understand how this text of Isaiah relates to us in the 21st century AD. What did God reveal about himself, of his, of his character, of his nature, of his plans on this proverbial climb up Mount Isaiah? What did he reveal through the prophet Isaiah in the history of this nation of Israel that still has bearing on us today? And the short answer is stacks. Stacks and stacks and heaps and heaps. And before we get to the specifics of those things in this section, I want to sort of give you a bit of a snapshot of where we've been. You know, get out the old iPhone on our trek and sort of scroll through the pictures so far. Because after all, after today, we're, we're approaching the halfway point. We're nearly halfway up the mountain, and so it's nice to sort of be reminded of the progress we've already made. So essentially, chapter one, it was, it was base camp for us. It was our point of departure as we looked at the big themes of judgment and hope that are sort of, feel, uh, sort of filled out in the rest of the book of Isaiah. They're mentioned at numerous points uh, along our trek. Our second sermon was chapters sort of two to five where Isaiah gave Judah a view through the telescope towards the summit, where God is taking them. And yet immediately that was contrasted with the reality of where they were presently. And the difference was shocking. I'm not sure if you remember it, but the reality of Judah's present position was best described as just willful, willfully trapped in idolatry. <laughs> actively denying the God who brought them out of Egypt and established them in their own land. And as a result of this, we saw they were guilty of every evil practice imaginable. In fact, it left a really bitter taste in your mouth. It was quite, quite a sickening sort of idea. And then added to that, Sermon 3, in fact, we stopped at one chapter, just, just Isaiah 6, 
where we, along with Isaiah, came to even a bigger, fuller understanding of the extent of Judah's, Judah's problem. It's even worse than we first thought. In fact, it was a bit like, you know, trekking up a mountain and it's all foggy and the, the, the clouds sort of part for a second and Isaiah comes face to face with the full panorama of God's enormity, of God's holiness, of his otherness as the unique creator of the entire universe. And Isaiah, just even just capturing a glimpse of this, just being in this presence just for a moment causes him rightly to despair. Woe is me, I am ruined, he says. Because in that space of that clarity of the vision of God's enormity, he can't help but consider just how unholy and unclean he and his people and in fact all of humanity are by comparison to God. He's that magnificent. And this distinction of God's immense holiness it made Isaiah realize that no one and nothing can stand in God's presence by virtue of their own worth unless God does something to make them able. And then we saw how this sort of picture played out, this picture of God's holy awesomeness, how it played out in real terms in the life of, of Judah and King Ahaz, who Pete, as Pete mentioned, essentially he was a dud king. <laughs> he was a dud king who put his hopes and his fears more in the surrounding nations than he did in God. He, put his, he feared and he hoped more in the nations surrounding him than he did in the God who has made promises to them. And despite his amazing stupidity, we saw this stunning promise. God has promised, in fact, even after he plans to level Judah, figuratively chopping it down like a forest of trees, from those stumps, from that stump of Jesse... There's a holy seed. There's a branch would grow and would bear fruit for all the nations to see. And we get this glimpse of hope, this image-laden uh, sort of picture that it's laden with all the covenantal hope and promises that God had already made to Israel. We get a genuine sense of hope in the hopelessness. Which brings us to our fifth installment, chapters 13 to 27 today. But I really sincerely don't want you to be put off by the, the enormous chunk that we're doing because while it does represent a fairly big climb up Mount Isaiah in some ways, essentially we're going to do it in a couple of giant leaps. <laughs> That's what we're aiming to do today. What I mean by that is we're just going to concentrate on a couple of the big ideas that weave throughout this section. They're not the only big ideas in this section. And at first, in fact, they're ideas that might not seem too earth-shattering to you at first. But in the context of the time and the people who they were originally spoken to, these ideas really did represent the necessary and massive shift in how Judah were to understand and relate to God. And the first big point is this. I've got them in your outline there. If you've got an outline, you can follow along and take your notes by all means. The first point is just this. Yahweh, that is Israel's God, he's not just God over their nation. He's the God over all nations. Now, do you get that? I mean, it's, it's not rocket science. Yahweh is not just another God. He's not just another national deity. He's God alone. Now, this point is abundantly clear when you read chapters 13 through 27. If you did read that during the week, it's the first and most obvious point you would have realized. Yahweh alone is God. I mean, just look at a few examples we get from the text. 
And again, have your Bibles open. This is where I would, I would encourage you along with Pete. If you've got a physical Bible, it's just so much easier to be flicking between chapters than looking them up on a phone. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one, grab one from the back and write your name in it. It's yours. But flick with me to Isaiah 13. This is how Isaiah 13, 1 starts. It says, A prophecy against Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop. Shout to them, beckon to them to enter the gates of nobles. I have commanded those I prepared for battle. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath, those who rejoice in my triumph. And we've got this image here of God raising an army. In fact, this army is identified as the Medes in in verse 17. And he's raising this army to fight his war against Babylon. Yahweh is rising an army from Persia and Media to fight against Babylon. Hold that thought. Flick forward to chapter 15, verse 1. A prophecy against Moab. Ar in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. Ker is in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. Dibon goes up to its temple, to its high places to weep. Moab wails over Nebo and Medeba. Every head is shaved, every beard cut off. And you keep reading and you read, Yahweh is bringing disgrace upon the nation of Moab. Keep holding that thought. Flick forward again. Chapter 17, verse 1. A prophecy against Damascus. Chapter 19, verse 1. A prophecy against Egypt. Chapter 33, verse 1. A prophecy against Tyre and Sidon. And in between these chapters, several other nations mentioned. Assyria, Philistia. All these other nations are mentioned. In fact, even the nations... Not just the nations immediately surrounding Israel and Judah. Even Cush gets a mention. I'm not sure if you know where Cush is. It's like, have you ever been to a holiday to Cush? Maybe you have. It's modern day Ethiopia. Right? Even Ethiopia gets a mention. Described there in chapter 18 verse 2 as a nation, tall, smooth-skinned, a people feared, far and wide, an aggressive nation of strange speech. And what is common in all these prophecies uttered by Isaiah is that it's Yahweh who is in control. It's Yahweh, it's the God of Israel. He's the one giving Isaiah these prophecies. He's the one giving Isaiah these utterances of ruins, sorry, of ruin that is coming against these nations. In fact, Yahweh, he's the one coming. He's the one coming in judgment. It's Yahweh who is in charge. Now, as I said earlier, it doesn't seem so startling to us today. If you are a product of Australian sort of Western Christianity and that sort of stuff, if you've been at church for any length of time, then me standing up here suggesting that the creator of the heavens and the earth, which by default will be your concept of God, if I just suggest that the creator of the heavens and the earth is also the God of all nations, that's a no-brainer. It's like dirt, him. <laughs> it's an obvious statement of logic. But this is very necessary for Judah to hear at this point in history. In fact, what this represents is a key development in God's self-revelation to the nation of Israel, to the kingdom of Judah. He's not just another national deity. Judah needs to hear that. You see, this is the cultural soup that Judah and Israel are swimming in at the time. You know I love big words. Here's another one. Ten points if you can work this into your speech this week. This is called henotheism. This is, how the, this is the common belief of the ancient, ancient Near East, henotheism. 
It's the worship of one God as supreme without the denying of other or the existence of other gods. You see, it's not quite polytheism. It's not the worship of many gods. And it's certainly not monotheism. It's not the belief that there is only one God. It's henotheism. It's like a bet each way kind of thing. It's a system that led to this idea of national gods in the ancient Near East. Each nation had their own God who they worshipped as supreme, solely worshipped one God without denying the existence of other gods. Oh, they're out there. One day they may gain ascendancy, so we better consider them. But how it played out in practice is two nations go to war, If one nation prevails over the other, then clearly their God is obviously supreme. And the conquered nation would take on their God as their own. This is how it sort of worked in the ancient Near East. This is henotheism. And in fact, it's why you read, as you read the Old Testament, the gods of the nations are often mentioned. They're not mentioned to validate them as real gods, but to acknowledge this idea at play. And so as you read, you'll notice the Canaanites, they worship Baal. Here's a little picture of Baal. They worship Baal, the god of thunder. For the Ammonites, it was Moloch, the bull-headed god. The Moabites thought Chemosh, they thought he was the top dog. But the Philistines worshipped Dagon, the fish god. I mean, I think he's a bit namby-pamby. He looks like a mermaid for crying out loud. Anyway, Assyria, Nishrok, the eagle god of agriculture. He was their, he was their horse, but uh, the Babylonians, no, no, no. They had the sun god, Murdoch. And the problem was, Israel had Yahweh. I say this was a problem for Israel, not because Yahweh was deficient as God, but because Israel essentially treated Yahweh as just another national God, just another national deity. Oh, sure, they'd entered into a covenant relationship with him on Mount Sinai. I mean, after all, he'd rescued them from Egypt, so clearly he was better than Amun, you know, the Egyptian god of the air. Clearly he had the edge on him. But for all other intents and purposes, and I want to stress, despite the fact that Yahweh demonstrated time and time again that he was the only true and living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and therefore above the fish and the bulls and the eagles and the agriculture and the sun and the moon and the thunder and whatever else God you'd like to worship. But Israel did not honour him as such. It's why we see this syncretistic edge in Israel constantly, this willingness to sort of uh, fold in the gods of the nations, you know, tip their proverbial hat to the other gods just in case that God turns out to be the supreme one we need to worship one day. And let's be honest, that is the potential with the looming threat of Assyria at this time. In fact, we will see this idea played out explicitly in chapter 36. But this is Judah's problem. And this was the issue that Yahweh through Isaiah was again correcting first and foremost in these chapters today. As Isaiah proclaims Yahweh's judgment over the nation, he is reminding them and perhaps reintroducing them to the radical notion of monotheism. There is only one God and Yahweh is him. And we know this is, this is clear. We must see that this is part of at least part of Isaiah's point because do you realize who Isaiah is speaking these prophecies to? As we read these chapters, I mean, sure, he's prophesying against Babylon, but you realize he's speaking to Judah? 
And yes, he's prophesying against Moab and Damascus and Tyre and all the other spaces, but there's no suggestion that he went and spoke these prophecies to those nations. Rather, he spoke against these nations to Judah. Because Judah needed the correction. Because Judah needed to come to see Yahweh is not just another God. He alone is God. Now, as I said, friends, it seemed a little ho-hum to us. It seems a little bit obvious to us, but we need to hear and apply this again and again to ourselves because I want to tell you that henotheism is alive and well in our own culture today. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't sort of take on the form of distinct national gods as it did in the ancient Near East. Instead, it is now being popularized in a cultural shift on attitudes to truth. I wonder if you've noticed this. I wonder if you've recognized this sort of idea being mainstreamed and popularized in our culture today. You'll recognize it when you hear language like your truth, my truth. See, people don't speak about the truth anymore. No, 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 that's conceived as narrow-minded and bigoted, probably racist too. Instead, people are encouraged to live out your truth. What's true for you based on your lived experience? No one can deny you that. And I want to say it's a 21st century version of henotheism because what it means is I don't have to deny the existence of other truths. Just like in the ancient Near East of Isaiah's time, nations didn't deny the existence of other gods. It's just that I get to value my truth exclusively as supreme. Do you see the problem with this? Don't get me wrong, it's popular, but it's illogical. It's, it's fashionable, it's appealing, but it's dead wrong. Friends, we've got to come to real. It's impossible to uphold competing and contradicting truths at the same time. You can't do that. Just as you can't sustain or uphold competing and contradictory notions of God at the same time. If Yahweh is the creator of the heavens, of earth, heavens and earth, if he alone is God, with no God from before him or after him, as he himself will declare in Isaiah 43, chapter, verses 10 and 11, if Yahweh alone is the exclusive saviour, then the acknowledgement or the worship of any other deity is ridiculous, wrong-headed, period. Friends, we've got to keep just coming back to that very basic but fundamental truth. Because you've got to realize that the cultural tide is shifting quickly against it. In fact, it kind of leads us to the second big idea that I want you to see from this chunk of Isaiah today. And in fact, I want to lead it with a question. It's, why is the acceptance of many gods in the ancient Near East or the many truths in our day, in our day and age, why is it so popular? Why do humans still seem to flock to this idea like a moth to a flame despite its contradictory stupidity? Why? I'll give you the easy answer. It's because it strokes our egos. The idea of individual truths or designer gods does wonders for human pride. It always has. It always will. Because get this, if my truth is supreme and only I alone determine what is most important for me, then I've effectively fashioned a personal God made in my own image. I have, in fact, made myself God. You see this? 
And this is precisely the kind of pride-filled arrogance, this kind of self-reliant empowerment that, again, is just saturated in our own culture. It's exactly what Yahweh was judging the nations for in Isaiah 13 to 27. I mean, I wonder if you noticed this reading the chapters during the week or in your Bible study. If you're not part of one, get part of one. Um, It's good for you. It's a consistent thread weaved through these chapters, the pride and the arrogance of the nations and which God is judging them for. Let's look at a few examples with me. Isaiah 16, 6, God speaking. He says, we have heard of Moab's pride, how great her arrogance, of her conceit, her pride and her insolence, but her boasts are empty. Or Isaiah's prophecy against Egypt. Why was it that God was coming against Egypt? Have a look at it there. Chapter 19, verse 11. God says, The officials of Zoan, they're nothing but fools. The wise counselors of Pharaoh give senseless advice. How can Pharaoh say, I am one of the wise men, a disciple of the ancient kings? Where are your wise men now? Let them show you and make known what Yahweh Almighty has planned against Egypt. You see the problem? It's there in Moab, it's there in Egypt, it's there in every other nation. They're filled with pride, so sure of themselves and so sure of their own own ability. But to quote uh, one of my favourite movies, Top Gun, their ego's writing checks, their buddy can't cash. And God's calling them out. God is calling them out for their brash foolishness and he's calling them out in judgment. And it was the same with the, the then present day superpower of Assyria and the then superpower in waiting, Babylon. In fact, in fact, both nations both failed to appreciate that their relative success as nations and empires did not stem from their own brilliance. But instead, Yahweh superintending the circumstances of their rise and their fall for his own plans and purposes. In fact, just skip back a chapter uh, uh, to the last section we did. Have a look at Isaiah 10, verse 5. See, here God describes Assyria as literally the rod of his anger. That's how he describes Assyria, whom he will use, whom he will brandish to punish Israel for their godlessness. But in verse 7 of the same chapter, This is not what he, that is Assyria, this is not what he thinks. This is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. Now, his purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. Skip on to verse 13. For this is Assyria's attitude. By the strength of my hand, I have done this. And by my wisdom, because I have understanding. I removed the boundaries of nations. I plundered their treasures. Like a mighty one, I subdued their kings. I mean, God mocks Assyria, comparing them to an axe, thinking that it rises itself above the one who swings it. And it's for this attitude that Yahweh says, chapter 10, verse 12, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty haughty look in his eyes. And it's going to be the same for the Babylon. The nation who would go on to destroy the Assyrian Empire, they would too find themselves destroyed because their attitude as an empire was to assume a godlike status for themselves. Look at God's charge against them in, uh, in Isaiah 14, verse 13. Of Babylon, he said, You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. 
I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Skipping to the end of verse 14, I will make myself like the Most High. Friends, again, do you hear the pride and the arrogance of the nations? Assuming that their strength and their wisdom is self-generated to their own glorious ends, not only trying to make themselves on par with God, but even ascending over the stars of God, setting their throne in the heights of heaven. That's the attitude of the nations. What will the true and living God do in response to all this? How will he respond to such arrogance, such haughtiness? Chapter 14, verse 22. I will rise up against them, declares Yahweh the Almighty. I will wipe out Babylon's name and survivors, her offspring and her, her descendants, declares Yahweh. Friends, just as Judah needed to hear and heed this in Isaiah's day, so too we need to hear and heed this again today. Because once again, we find some striking, in fact, disconcerting similarities in attitude in our culture to Judah and the nations. I mean, think about it. We live in a world that believes they no longer have need of God. We live in a world that champions human wisdom and human intellect and human potential to the point that they've done away with the notion of God altogether. I mean, you want a classic good example of this, a recent one? Have you seen the ads for the No Religion campaign in the upcoming census? There's a, there's a few of them out there. There's a few on telly. There's a few on the, on the net. There's a, they're all pretty much the same. The one I'm thinking of has a little snapshot like this. It's a couple sitting on the lounge filling out their census on the, on the Tuesday night. And the man looks at the woman and says, Hey, when was the last time you went to church? And the woman answers, Oh, we gave up on that years ago. And the man answers, Well, that's easy. No religion. I want you to see that, that's the attitude this ad campaign wants people to adopt. We gave up on that years ago. What's, I mean, it's quite a tell. It's, 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 a, bit of, it's a bit of a um, benign statement at one, at one level, but it's super telling. <laughs> it's for secular humanists who are running this campaign, this is the attitude they want you to believe, they want you to adopt. The idea that belief in God is something you should have grown out of by now. The so-called God of the gaps, he's no longer relevant. Let's be honest. Be brave enough. Be honest. Human wisdom and, and intellect, that's where it's at. That's what's necessary. God's no longer relevant. We are the hope for our future. In fact, we're God. <laughs> this is nothing new, folks. It's just Assyria 2.0. It's just Babylon 21st century style. I mean, our world may not carry carved images of deities through the streets anymore, but we'll march under banners marked pride celebrating every debased and godless attitude you can think of, and then we'll call it a family event. And if you don't join in, if you refuse to participate, and if you dare suggest that this might be a folly attitude, you're the enemy. Friends, this is the modern world we live in, isn't it? And yet for all humanity's pompous grandstanding and posturing against God, what will be the result? Well, this is the third and the final big idea I want you to see from this section of Isaiah. And it's, again, it's littered throughout this section, but it's there so clearly in Isaiah 24 that we heard read out earlier. You see, God is not threatened by the designs of godless or grandstanding humans. He will not be mocked. 
and his just 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 judgment it will be it will be perfect have a look there Isaiah 24 1 to 3 see Yahweh is going to lay waste to the earth and devastate it he will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants it will be the same for the priest as for people for the master as for his servant for the mistress as for her servant, for the seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor, the earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. Yahweh has spoken this word. Now among all the things we could look at in Isaiah chapter 24, I just want you to notice here the model of God's justice. Do you notice the totality of his justice and his judgment? Do you notice how comprehensive it is, irrespective of whether you're a master or a servant, a seller or a buyer, a borrower or a lender? The point you need to see here is that God's justice is exhaustive and there's nowhere to hide, no matter who you are or where you come from. God's justice is perfect. Now this answers a question that's sort of been hanging awkwardly in the background on our trek up Mount Zizai with Judah, but it raises some other questions too. You see, it answers the questions of God's fairness in judgment. You see, we see here that God is not unfairly singling out Israel and Judah for special treatment, for for judgment and letting the other nations off scot-free. No way. Yahweh, as God of all nations and all people, will administer his justice and his judgment perfectly over all nations and all people. But this doesn't solve the problem for Judah. Do you see this? It doesn't solve it. It just intensifies it. Because the solutions that they've been flirting with as a nation of seeking shelter or future hope in the surrounding nations, of entertaining even the thought that one of their gods might be the supreme god worth worshipping one day, it's no solution at all. I mean, to use a bit of a mountaineering analogy again, it's if Judah are walking up Mount Isaiah fighting a blizzard and looking for shelter under an overhanging rock ledge, only to realise when they look up that the snow falling is actually the beginning of an avalanche. And just as a rocky outcrop offers no protection from an avalanche, neither will another nation or another nation's idols offer protection from the judgement of Yahweh, who is God of all nations. And so Judah are faced with another bigger question. And now the nations will find themselves faced with it also. And the question that's going to be left hanging, dangling awkwardly for a little while yet, is this notion of does divine judgment mean divine rejection? Is there any way out from this? Because in the face of an avalanche, People are suddenly forced to admit that positive thinking and self-belief won't help you. Positive thinking and self-belief will not avoid you the judgment of God that is building in size and speed like an avalanche down a snowy mountainside. So where can Judah, where can the nations, where can anyone turn to find refuge? You see, right here in this section of Isaiah, There's only two options. In fact, there's still only two options for us today. And it's as simple as this. You either put your hope in the gods of this age who are coming to nothing, or you put your hope in the God of the ages who is coming. Who will you choose?
feels a bit awkward to sort of leave it there, but it's where we're going to leave it today. It's where we're going to start to pray from. But I want to encourage you that we have a distinct advantage over Judah and in Isaiah's time at this point. For though for them the question of God's judgment and salvation are still hanging in the balance, we have the advantage of knowing the answer. And the answer has been provided in Christ. You know, we, we don't see it so much in today's passage of Isaiah, though if you look carefully, it is again threaded throughout. Look at the end of chapter 19, for example. There is hope for the nations here. There is a highway being foreseen between Assyria and Egypt. There is a cosmic relationship um, being restored, not just between the, the, the nations, but between the nations and, and Yahweh. It's pretty magic. It's, it's, it's huge. We're going to pick that up as we get along, but, but right now we have the benefit of seeing this solution and this hope come through Jesus. We see where the refuge is to be had. And it's by running to, into, it's running to him who has actually gone before us. And so as we pray, we get to pray with the benefit of thanking God for the magnificent gift of his son in whom we find our peace and forgiveness. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that it's in your mercy that you make it so plain to us that not only are you our greatest threat, that your judgment is real, that it's all-consuming and it's absolutely terrifying, but you also make it plain that you are our only hope. You make it plain that you offer a real refuge, a real safety, a real peace, a real forgiveness for those who actually put their hope in you. And we thank you that, unlike Judah in Isaiah's time, we now already know and see the object of this peace and salvation in Christ and him crucified in our place. He who bore our sins, who took our shame, who took our punishment that we not, might not have to bear them ourselves. And so we ask, Father, that as we continue this trek up, the difficult sections of Mount Isaiah, you will only increase our understanding of you, our gratefulness to what you've done in Christ and our desire for your love expressed to us through him and extended to people of all nations. Father, that may, may that be our joy in uh, telling and people realising the hope that they have in Christ too. It's for your glory we pray. Amen.